Hey, it's Curious City Editor Alexandra Solomon. So I'm sure a lot of you have had this experience. You're walking down the street. You notice a slew of large trailer trucks parked along the road. Lots of people with walkie-talkies, huge lighting rigs, some kind of food truck. Yep, clearly they're filming something. And you kind of stand there in awe because you know somehow this actual place that you can see is going to be completely transformed into something totally different when it appears on screen. And it kind of gives you a sense of pride. They're filming in your neighborhood, maybe even on your block, and that people all over the country and beyond will get to see it. Chicago's now home to numerous TV series and a regular go-to locale for movie makers. But it wasn't always that way. You see, for years, decades even, not a whole lot was being shot on location here. So why did Chicago see such a long dry spell? And these days, why are some calling Chicago the Hollywood of the Midwest? That, plus, we'll tell you about several spots around the city where directors love to film. Coming up. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Okay, so we're going to tackle a whole bunch of questions about movie locations in Chicago. And we're going to get some help from journalist Matt Segur. He writes about pop culture and filmmaking. Hey, Matt. Hey, Alexandra. So, Matt, You know, if we go back to the early days of cinema, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, Chicago was kind of a premier place to make movies. We just did a story at Curious City about William Foster, who was the first African-American to make a film with an all-black cast, you know, a real leader in the industry. But despite being early to the game, we kind of fell out of favor and we sort of disappeared for a while. Is that true? (laughs) Yes, that's very true. So what went wrong? Did we tick somebody off? Did we burn some bridges? Kind of what happened? Well, it's a number of different things. In the early 1900s, after the heyday of silent film in Chicago, the weather was the main factor why a lot of productions started going to the West, Hmm. to Hollywood. There's a story of Charlie Chaplin early on. He came and it was said that he was here for a year, but he really wasn't. Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune told me that he was only here for 23 days filming silent films. And then he went off to the West Coast because he just couldn't stand the temperatures. Yeah. So you have this period where Chicago goes from being a central location in between the East and West Coast for productions, to becoming less so. So by the mid-1950s, Mayor Richard J. Daley takes office, and he didn't like the way Chicago was being portrayed on television and in film. 
as this corrupt city full of gangsters and mobsters. <laughs> and one example of this is the procedural TV show, M-Squad, starring Lee Marvin. Daly didn't like that that show portrayed Chicago as the city full of dirty cops. Hmm. My name is Frank Ballinger, Detective Lieutenant M-Squad, a special detail of the Chicago police. So there's this famous quote that Lee Marvin told newspapers, you know, we shoot wherever we want without permits. To shoot something in the city, you need to file that paperwork. Daly wouldn't approve the permits? Daly wouldn't approve it because he didn't have control over the entire set. He didn't have control of how the city was being portrayed. Hmm. He wanted control, and he also wanted Chicago to be shown in this great light rather than what this TV show and what many movies were showing at the time. Hmm. I want that Irish son of a bitch hit. There's just one thing, Mr. Capone. We may have to take some of Moran's boys with him. I'll send flowers. <laughs> and then, even while Daly was in office... Chicago was still on the big screen, but not as much as it is today, and not with the access that the city is giving productions today. But then it's 1979. That's when things start to change. We elect Jane Byrne, our first woman mayor, and she flips every, she does a 180. She says, if you want to shoot here, come on. And within months of being sworn in, what is now one of the most iconic movies set in Chicago began shooting here. And that's, of course, the Blues Brothers. And this starts filmmakers getting an all-access pass to shooting in the city. There's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas. Half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. So I spoke with Chicago Tribune film critic Michael Phillips about Mayor Jane Byrne, and he said... She was much, much friendlier about, like, yeah, you want to run 15 cars across Daly Plaza and tear it up a little bit? As long as you fix it up later, no problem. why we have the Blues Brothers really kind of destroying uh, downtown uh, <laughs> while, while uh, filming this incredible, massive, expensive chase sequence. Well, this is definitely Lower Wacker Drive. Great film from my childhood, so I am aging myself here. That film was shot everywhere from, you know, Southside Churches to the old Maxwell Street Market to Lower Wacker. As Michael points out, Daily Plaza then there were so many other films right after the Blues Brothers that took place in Chicago. Right. Throughout the 80s and 90s, you have Chicago appearing more and more on the silver screen and blockbusters. There's the untouchables. They're not to prove of your methods. Yeah? Well, you're not from Chicago. Classic John Hughes films. I'm thinking about The Breakfast Club, which basically defined my high school experience. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. What do you think Ferris is going to do? 
going to be a track book on Venus. Horror films like Child's Play. There was also the Martin Scorsese classic, The Color of Money. Then there were thrillers, Backdraft, The Fugitive. The fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. That trend has just continued and if not grown since this time. So with so many films, you know, having been shot here way back and also more recently, we've gotten so many questions from people about particular locations. And one of the places that we were asked about were National Guard armories. And apparently they're used in a lot of locations for films. Where are these armories? What do they look like? How many are there? So the two most used armories are the General Jones Armory around South Cottage Grove and then the Northwest Armory off North Kedzie. And and those are still active National Guard armories, meaning they're still used for military use, right? Right. So does that make it complicated to organize shoots in them? Yes, it's not easy at all. They still have all that military equipment in them. You have to work with the governor's office, the National Guard. In some cases, you're working with the Department of Defense just to get approval. I spoke with location manager Nick Rafferty, and he said there was so much red tape to get approval. And then oftentimes you have to move out tanks and Humvees and guns. You have to find a place to put them. So it's quite a big deal to try to use a National Guard armory. So how did these places become, you know, popular locations? Well, a big part of it is just that these structures are so huge. When I was speaking with Nick about this, he gave me a sense of the scale of these armories. The ceiling is almost 100 feet high. It sort of looks like an aircraft hangar. They both just have a really impressive square footage. And so this space allows filmmakers to build entire sound stages in in there. Today, yes, we have Cinespace, which is expanding even as we speak. But as recently as a few years ago, you had movies like Steven Soderbergh's Contagion, Spike Lee's Chirac. You see, we women saving lives. That's our job. It's about bringing an end to this strife and giving the hood the true meaning of life. They were building sets inside of these armories, as well as just like using these spaces for big scenes in their movies. So I spoke with another former location manager and the former head of the Chicago film office, Rich Moskal. And he told me that there, there were sound stages in Chicago before Cinespace, but they couldn't accommodate the kind of space, the kind of needs that these armories could and he offered me a really good example to just nail down that point and involves a romantic comedy with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston. You know what, Gary, I asked you to do one thing today. One In the case of the movie The Breakup, they needed to build like a two-story house inside of a inside of a space that they could control everything. They could control the lights, they could control the weather, they control everything. Uh, which is why people shoot in sound stages. It's like you don't have to deal with the elements. You can just move walls where you want to move them and and build things the way you want them built. You said on our very first date that you don't like flowers, that they're a waste of money. Every girl likes flowers, Gary. And so even though Chicago now has sound stages, 
when I was speaking with Nick, he says that filmmakers will still scout these armories just because they have these great architectural features hmm. from the Art Deco, the ceremonial rooms, the antique fixtures. So much of that can be used for these visually appealing scenes that location scouts love, that directors love, that they might need for period pieces and films like that. I'm sure people are going to look at the National Guard armories in a whole different light, which is kind of cool. The next time I go buy one, I know I will. We got a question about a very different kind of location, the Amstutz Expressway, which apparently is also a popular location for a lot of movie shoots. Where exactly is that expressway? Yes, this is in the north suburb of Waukegan. It's used in movies. It's still used by drivers, but not a lot. So tell us about some of the films and TV shows that have been shot there. So the biggest one that comes to mind is Batman Begins, and you can see it when the Batmobile comes out. I'll get my car. I brought mine. Yours. I've got to get me one of those. If you look closely, it's it's just this generic roadway, and it, it really doesn't look like anything, and here comes a Batmobile. Hmm. Some other productions that have been shot, the Dick Wolf procedurals that are hugely popular now, um, Chicago PD, Chicago Med. Jeff, dispatch that mask out. Only been outside a few minutes, but it's at least a dozen vehicles, maybe more. God! Oh, here you go. So the biggest reason this is a popular location is because not a lot of folks use it. And so if you need to shoot like a highway scene, can you imagine the chaos of like closing down one of the major expressways? Yeah, that would be crazy. Right. (laughs) Right. So movie houses, when they need a big city expressway with not as much of a headache when it comes to shutting it down, this is where they go. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down! Uh, He's probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! So that makes sense. For logistics, it's a good location for shooting those sort of big scenes that, that those kind of movies need. We got asked about another spot. I'm not familiar with this location, a place called the Skylark Bar, which is at Cermak and Halstead. Tell us a little bit about this bar and why it's such a popular location for film shoots. So the first thing about this bar that industry folks take notice of, it happens before you even enter the front door. And here's what former location manager and former head of the Chicago Film Office, Rich Moskal, had to say about Skylark. The bar sort of sits there looking very much like a blue-collar oasis in the middle of 1930s Chicago industry. Smokestacks, brick streets. It's got a lot of grit, a lot of character. Uh, It hasn't changed a whole lot. So from the outside, it really does look like the kind of place you would hear the you know, the five o'clock whistle blow, and then suddenly people started streaming in there to sort of talk about the day, right? So it sounds like this bar has a real feel and a vibe that it gives off from the outside. But tell me a little bit more about what it's like inside. Inside's very vintage. It's really attractive to location managers, but it's also huge. One thing about great looking locations is they also have to be locations you can fit into. You can fit a crew of 50, 60, 70 people with lights, gear, cameras. I mean, it has to be workable. And the Skylark has that with places to spread out and get all the right angles. That is a huge bonus for productions. And, you know, the bar itself is vintage and cool and wooden. And 
there's something very timeless with a lot of grit, but very welcoming. And this is the type of bar that can look like your blue collar hangout like it did in the breakup. It's better if nobody trade. You don't know anything. What are you talking about? I'll take care of it. I don't want you to take care of anything. John, do me a favor. I'm being serious with you. I know, I know. Smart. You're smart. But it can also be used as like a jazz club. So it's also very versatile. And here's what location manager Nick Rafferty had to say about it. If you put 10 bars in front of a director, and it doesn't matter what director, and the Skylark's one of them, the director will probably pick the Skylark every time. There's still this sort of patina, this character about the place that looks like Chicago mobsters might have been drinking in there. And it's certainly got a magical quality to it. After the break, we head underground to see how filmmakers use Chicago as the Cape Crusaders' Gotham City. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark. Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. So, Matt, there's one more big question we want to tackle, and it involves shutting down more than a scenic bar or a big structure like an armory or even an underused road. For the dark night, a huge sector of downtown Chicago needed to be closed down. Here's Rich Moskal, the former location manager and former head of the Chicago Film Office, to set it up for us. One of the centerpieces was this final chase sequence with the Joker in his in his 40-foot trailer and Batman on his bat pod. It was going to be an extensive chase that took place all the way from the old post office building across the river into Lower Wacker Drive, back up onto downtown Chicago, and right in the heart of the financial district along LaSalle Street, which, if you're familiar with that image, is the Board of Trade, which is this incredible piece of Art Deco architecture that sits at the foot of LaSalle Street with just a magnificent skyscraper canyon of buildings on either side. Some of Chicago's most valuable and historic architecture and real estate is like Right there, man. I mean, it's like you, if, if you're looking for an image of Chicago, that's it. So it's obviously a massive undertaking. And so the question we were asked is, how did the film's director, Christopher Nolan, shoot this epic scene? This production had to convince city officials and business people. And so Warner Brothers sponsored this lunch and they got all these business owners together and these city officials. And they said, this is what's going to happen. And what helped 
Rich out was just saying, this is Batman. You know, this is a Batman movie. Everybody gets it right. It's like, there's no question about what it's going to look like, how it's going to feel, and it's going to be exciting. And I think there's almost an immediate appreciation, if not buy-in for like, how can we make this work? Yeah, we want to be part of this process too. All those guys were into Batman. (laughs) Everyone was into Batman. And he said, you know, any other movie, it would have been a challenge, but because this was the next Batman movie, Everyone got on board and everyone could see, oh, this is why we have to close LaSalle. This is why we have to close Lower Wacker. They got it. It clicked. So that's the back end pre-production and politicking. Take me to the shoot and let's break this down into two parts, Lower Wacker and then LaSalle Street. Let's start with the Lower Wacker portion. I can remember in this part of the chase sequence in the movie, it was long, seemingly winding down every inch of Lower Wacker explosions going off and banging into nearly everything in sight. How did they make that happen? And what were some of the big challenges they faced in doing that? They had to close Wacker Drive from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. for about a week to film this. It was a huge undertaking because it's like a good mile of roadway that sort of snakes through the underground there. It's not a roadway that everybody travels. It's dark, it's mysterious, sort of snakes through the underground of downtown Chicago. It runs along the Chicago River. It has a very cavernous, subterranean feel. And if you don't know your way around there, it might be intimidating to some people. But for others, it's the lifeblood of taking deliveries and garbage pickup and loading docks and employee entrances. A lot of that work and a lot of that operation, a lot of that life happens when nobody else is around in the middle of the night. And of course, that's when they wanted to film. And you can't just close certain sections of it. You really do in order to make it work so that nobody gets hurt. You have to close off the entire thing. So a week was ambitious to do that. These things are built for that, right? He's going to need something a lot bigger to get through this. What is that, a bazooka? And Michael Phillips notes that the relationship between the film industry and the city by the time that The Dark Knight wrapped up shooting had only strengthened. I remember reading at the time that from one of the location managers quoted in a a piece saying, you know, I don't think there's a city in America that would let us do this except Chicago. So (laughs) we've gone from uh, movie making hostility to complete accommodation to get another project here. So, Matt, clearly the city of Chicago now is interested in getting films and television shows to shoot here, and they've had a big impact on the city, and the city's, you know, had a big impact back on those industries. I'm curious, you know, what's the future look like for Chicago's film and television making scene Chicago has so much to offer to the filmmaking industry, to Hollywood, to those TV productions that are looking to shoot in the city. And nowadays, it's no longer just about shooting at just the tourist attractions. And I think Michael Phillips sums it up best. With Cinespace going on you know, the near west side, we have so many Dick Wolf series being shot here. I think what we're, what we're learning is that Chicago, and this is a great advantage, for Chicago as a movie-making town, has a pretty stunning variety of neighborhoods and visual locations and filmmaking possibilities that have yet to be tapped. You know, you don't always have to go down to the, to the bean and shoot that as your background. In fact, 
I've had it with the bean. I love the bean. I don't want to see it on screen anymore. <laughs> what I want to see is I want to see all kinds of neighborhoods. Like when director Steve McQueen came in and shot the film Widows, you know, he shot in Logan Square. He shot in Bridgeport. And these weren't locations that I had seen over and over and over on screen. And that's the great thing about this city. I think it's just got socioeconomically in terms of its incredible diversity and also um, you know, uneasy alliance of all the neighborhoods. Uh, this is really fruitful material for a filmmaker, both visually and in terms of the stories you can tell. Yeah, so it sounds like we're going to see just a lot more of the city represented on the screen. So not just the downtown, but really every corner of the city. I'm sure lots of people are looking forward to seeing their neighborhoods featured in films. Pretty cool. It's really cool. Matt Segur, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about all these locations and how these movies have been shot. Really, really interesting stuff. And I'm sure people are going to enjoy heading around the city to to check some of them out. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Matt Segur for his reporting on this episode. Oh, and this week we've put together a movie location quiz. So if you were paying close attention during this episode, you could potentially get a perfect score. Check it out at wbez.org slash Curious City. The show is produced by Jason Mark and Joe Dassault, with some additional help this week from Paloma Moreno-Jimenez. Linda Lutton reports for Curious City. Maggie Civit is our digital and engagement producer. Our intern is Sophia Lowe. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Curious City's editor, Alexandra Solomon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.